Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we answer questions in the light of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says, so we can know what to believe. We don't want to make mistakes like so many do, where we believe something and then try to go to the Bible to support what we believe. We only want to believe it when it's true. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So we had a question at the end of our last session about the prosperity teachers. And so I wanted to talk about that. Um, I The question was something along the lines of um, how would you refute <clears throat> the prosperity teachers? Now, I have a lot of experience um, with the prosperity movement. I was first exposed to it when I was like 19 years old. <clears throat> Excuse me. I was attending a four-square church and we satellited in um, some prosperity teachings. And that was my very first exposure. And I was told that God wanted me to be rich, that God wanted me to live in a two-story house, that God wanted me to, to have a Cadillac. <clears throat> he really didn't, I wasn't concerned about the Cadillac or the two-story house. But then he said, God wants you to have a Corvette. And I thought, well, that's funny. God wants me to have a Corvette and I want to have a Corvette. God wants me rich and I want to be rich. And that night when I left, we were talking about it afterwards, how this was kind of new and exciting. And then as I'm driving home in my 1972 Vega, by the way, the Lord spoke to my heart, something out of 1 Timothy chapter 6. So it says, if people are, te are teaching godliness as a means of financial gain, then withdraw yourself from them. And so I went home and I didn't know exactly where it was. And I took time to look it up. And I found exactly what it was, and other passages began, began to come together. And I want to show you this passage in 1 Timothy 6 momentarily. But other passages began to come together in the Bible that really showed me that this was a false teaching. That under the law, if they were to keep all of the things of the law, then they would be blessed beyond anything they could imagine. Well, they couldn't keep the things of the law. They ended up being removed from the land. And you cannot take those Psalms and those promises to Israel that if you keep my law, then you're not going to be sick or you're not, or, or you're going to be, um, it, it talks about, um, it talks about wealth. You can't take them and cross them over to us living in this new time. Now, also being rich isn't wrong. The Bible says, tell those who are uh, who are rich here, not to trust in the uncertainty of riches and be willing to share. And so God may choose some to invest wealth because they'll turn around and invest it in other places for him. God may do that. However, we have no promise that God wants us to be rich. Now, shortly after that, I came back with, you know, kind of fired up and a couple of passages to show with people in the church. And I quickly became one that was fighting against this doctrine that was spreading through our small little church there um, on Wantabo in Albuquerque. <clears throat> and um, I began to talk to a friend of mine who had attended um, Rama, which is Kenneth Hagen's school. And he had just come back from it. And I started to notice that there was a different way at which they were approaching scripture. For example, during that time, I was watching someone, and I can't remember who it is, but they were talking about Jesus um, coming into Mary and Martha's life. So how did that happen? I mean, Mary, Mary and, um, and Joseph's life. How did that happen? It happened when he was born. So shortly after he was born, King showed up and gave him gold. And so the teaching was, look, invite Jesus into your life, and shortly afterwards, people are going to give up and start giving you gold. It's going to start happening. And I thought, what an incredible twisting of Scripture. Now, talking to my buddy who had gone to Rama again, which is Kenneth Hagin's school. Kenneth Hagin um, has passed away, but there was Kenneth Hagin's school. Um, and we were talking about whether or not God always wants to heal you. And I was bringing up places in the Bible where people were sick. And I said, Paul prayed that the thorn in his flesh would be removed three times. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. And he said to me, yeah, my grace is sufficient for you, meaning you don't need to ask me to do it. You need to do it. You need to reach out and grab a hold of what God has for you. He's already got his healing for you. The grace has already been given. And so the passage, which clearly says, like Jesus, not my will, but your will be done, clearly says that God had the thorn in his flesh remain to humble him because of his great calling. And, and then it was twisted to say something completely different. 
Another example of this is in 3 John, where it says, um, Beloved, above all things, I would that you would prosper and be in good health. And they'll quote that out of context. Above all things, God wants me to prosper and be in good health? Well, there it is. The prosperity gospel right there in the Bible, in the book of 3 John. However, when you go back and read it, it says, My beloved Gaius, whom I love in the Lord, um, above all things, I would that you would prosper and be in good health. So it was John writing a letter, to, a letter to Gaius and said to Gaius that John, above all things, wanted him to be well in good health. That's like us writing an email today that says, I hope everything finds you well. <clears throat> God did not say, above all things, I would that you would prosper and be in good health. In fact, the Bible tells us that above all things, I would that you would have a fervent love for one another. That's what God desires. <clears throat> now let's go ahead and get into a couple of passages which clearly show that the prosperity movement is teaching heresy. So this is 1 Timothy 6, and it's the New King James Bible. It says, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is upset with disputes and arguments of words, um, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. <clears throat> That's not a good group to be in. What do they suppose? Who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. And this is a reference to financial gain. That'll become here clear here in a moment. From such, withdraw yourself. This means that if you are going to a prosperity church, or if your church is leaning towards prosperity, it would be a reason to leave the church. Withdraw yourself from them. This is not what God wants from you. Now, he goes on to say, and this is how we know that the financial gain here, that that gain here is financial gain because of context. It's going to go on to tell us. I'm going to take a moment here and get my do not disturb on so I don't got things dinging um, the whole time we're here. <clears throat> All right. So now let me go ahead and bring it back up to the passage here. Uh, so again, um, so these, these men of destitute of the truth suppose godliness is a means of gain, and that's financial gain. From such withdraw yourself, for godliness with contentment is great gain. See, the financial gain is up above. Be godly, love God more, walk in faith, have more faith, you're going to be rich. Those men are destitute of the truth. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world and it is certain that we will carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we should be content. They're telling you, that you can have. They're told, telling me I can have a Cadillac and a two-story house as a 19-year-old? And, and, and here he's saying, with food and clothing, be content. But those who desire to be rich, and they always point in, it's a desire to be rich, not money that's the evil. Which, you know, that, that, that reveals to me sometimes that maybe there really is a love of money. Because they, want, they don't want this verse to say what it says. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptations and a snare. And that's a warning. Yes, those who are rich, it's not to those. It's and, and the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And it is the love of money, but it's still the love of money. And it says, that in many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil from some have strayed from their faith and their greediness. But there's a, a once saved, always saved passage. I, I tell you every once in a while, I come across passages that make me wonder about once saved, always saved. So they strayed from the faith, which means they had to be in the faith before they strayed from the faith. Now, again, I'm not going to get into the once saved, always saved right now, um, but this is one of those passages. But in their greediness, they strayed from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. They wanted to be rich because they wanted money to buy, to do whatever they wanted to do. They felt like money was the answer. We should know money's not the answer. And you never preach godliness as a means of financial gain. It is, uh, it's just not true at all. Now, how, do, how are we supposed to teach the real aspect of giving? And we see this clearly in Philippians chapter 4. I think it starts in verse um, 11. Let me just take a look. It starts in verse 10. So let me go ahead and bring this up for you. This is um, Philippians 4, verse 10. And um, here, Paul is talking about the fact that the Philippians, who was a poorer church, were giving to him to help in his ministry. Listen to what he says. And this is the proper attitude to have towards money. He said, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at least your care for me has flourished. 
So he says, I rejoice in the Lord that you guys are caring for me. Again, though you sincerely did care, but you lacked opportunity. They wanted to help them before, but they couldn't because they didn't have the money. They were a poor church. But now they had something to be able to help them. And then it says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned whatever state I am in to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things, I have learned to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So he's saying, look, I'm not speaking in my, in my need. I don't need to be rich. I don't, I've, I've learned in whatever state I am in to be content and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Then he says, nevertheless, you have done well. You have shared in my distress. So think about how bad things were for Paul. I mean, this is a prison epistle. And he says, you've shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know as that the beginning of the gospel, when I departed Macedonia, no church shared with my concerns, giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. He knows that their sacrifice in giving to him in his distress, in his great need, in prison, is going to abound towards their account. And he doesn't seek the, the gift at all. He loves them. He says the same to the Corinthians. He says, I don't seek your money. I seek you. I want to know you. And then he goes on to say, um, indeed, I have all and abound. I am full receiving from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now that verse, and my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus, is in the context of a very poor church helping an apostle who is in prison and has nothing and is in distress and that God is going to meet their needs. How often that's quoted when we are not being generous, we're not helping those who are in need, and God said, give and it will be given unto you. And so Paul could confidently say, now may God meet and supply all of your needs. So the Bible does not teach us that God wants us rich or that God wants us healthy, that God never wants us sick. We will go through these things. We will face them. We'll struggle with them. God uses them in our lives to help build character in us because God cares about us. That's why we're supposed to rejoice over the trials that we face. And when they say things like, you don't have enough faith, that's the reason you're sick. Listen, that's a, that's a horrible thing to say to someone who's really sick and suffering because some kind, sometimes God delivers, but most often he doesn't. And we've had people come to our church we had one guy who was, had um, Lou Gehrig's disease, which my father passed away from. And he was going to a, a prosperity church. And they told him that if he had enough faith, he would have been healed, but he didn't have enough faith, so he wasn't healed. It was a devastating thing to be told from them. A church that's supposed to up, be uplifting him, building him, maybe even walking him on his way to eternity, which is an incredible privilege to be able to do. And then to tell them that they don't have enough faith, when the men lowered the paralytic down before Jesus, early on in Jesus's ministry, and Jesus tells the paralytic, Pick, stand up, take up your bed and walk. And then he says, the faith of your friends has made you well. It's not just our faith, but it's the faith of friends. And sometimes like Jesus, not my will be done, your will be done. God does what his will would be done. Listen, God heals and we're seeing a lot, we live in the age of research and it's awesome and, and it's awesome. Um, we're seeing a lot of books being written about miracles and how God does miracles. But for every one of those, there's a certain number of people that don't have God deliver them that way. He delivers them ultimately maybe through death or he delivers them by having them like Paul walk with the sickness that he had for whatever reason God has in store for that. All right. So um, I think uh, refuting the prosperity movement is really easy. It appeals to people's greed. And if you're involved in a prosperity church, then get out of it. Um, I've known prosperity churches that have completely changed. They've repented from it. Um, I heard that Joyce Myers had repented. Uh, Todd White had repented. Uh, Todd White's kind of a newer um, prosperity guy. Um, and whether they have or not, I don't know. Whether, whether they're repentant of something else, but they're still teaching prosperity, I don't know. 
but it's a good thing when people are feel hit by it. I know Benny Hinn repented a while back, and I think uh, didn't really follow through with what his repentance was when it was pointed out that they were teaching things that are just not right, that are just ungodly. All right, so really good to see you guys today. Um, we have a question from Frank Sinatra, which is just amazing. The way you look tonight. Sorry, I did that last time too. I won't do it every time, Frank, I promise. Um, question, um, what happens to Christian soul right after death? All right, so this is a yeah often asked question, Frank. Uh, it's called the intermediate state where we die, our bodies are here, we're up in heaven before the resurrection, when we're going to be united together with our bodies and our corruptible is going to put on incorruptible, our mortal is going to put on immortality. Those who are dead will rise first and, and then we who are alive and remain will meet the Lord in the air. That's the resurrection. So the intermediate state has always been somewhat of a question. What is the intermediate state for Christians? What is the intermediate state for non-believers? So Paul, we can answer the question for Christians really easily. Paul said, to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. So we are in God's presence. Now, are we spirit at that point? Remember, God is spirit. The angels are spirits. They can manifest in bodies. So does God allow us to have bodies we can manifest in that are temporary? And it seems like Paul talks about this when he talks about us not being furtherly unclothed, but clothed um, in, I think it's 2 Corinthians, where he talks about that. But we're not quite sure. We are in the presence of God, and soul sleep isn't true. Paul said, I'm torn between two things, to be here with you or to go be with the Lord. And to go and, and, and be with the Lord is better, but I'll choose to stay here with you. Now, Paul wouldn't have had that dilemma if there was soul sleep. So the intermediate state is not that you fall asleep now and wake up in eternity, wake up on judgment day. That's not what happens. The intermediate state for a non-believer is much more difficult. You, the only really clue that we have, because the Bible talks about the grave um, in the Old Testament, it talks about not knowing anything in the grave. And so some do believe that the non-believer's soul is asleep until he is awoken for judgment. But then Jesus told the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And I think we have to be careful with this story, but it does give us some insight into the intermediate state, at least before the time of the crucifixion and resurrection. So the rich man and the poor man, one is luxuriously rich, the poor man dies at the gate, they both die on the same day, and they both now are in the intermediate state. The poor man is being comforted by Abraham in Abraham's comfort. The rich man is in torment, but he can see the poor man with Abraham. And so he says, send him to dip his hand in the water and come and put it on my lips for I'm in torment in this place. And Abraham says, son, you had what was good in your day and he had the evil, but now you have the evil and he has the good. Now, something else is being said altogether with this, with this, um, this story. The point Jesus is making is that this rich man, luxuriously rich, couldn't even help somebody that was on his doorstep. At his gate, the dogs came and licked his wounds. Has God helped, has God blessed us? And we won't even reach out and help the people who are close to us? But this is what Christians do. So that's the point of this account. But we do see in torment and in comfort. So is the intermediate state before the time of Jesus a torment for the non-believer waiting, which would be a torment in itself, and is it is was the is it an analogy that he's in torment and wants water, or is it a reality? And are they gnashing teeth while they're waiting? Is there darkness and gnashing of teeth? And all of these obviously get into the question about hell eventually, but we're still just talking about the intermediate state before they're judged, because they will not go to what we would call hell until the intermediate state. I mean, in, until um, the judgment, and then they are cast into the lake of fire, okay? So the, the, the confusion comes with several different things called hell in the Old Testament. But that's what happens to us right after we die. Um, Frank, I can tell you that there are many occasions where Christians will smile before they die, 
will look up and look surprised. I was with my late wife when she passed away. And right when she died, she, all, she took a little gasp and, and looked shocked. And that was it. And I like to think that she was indeed seeing Jesus. Like um, we got very close to the intermediate state with Stephen being stoned. And looking up to heaven, he said, I see Jesus standing by the right hand of the Father. And I think Jesus was standing to welcome him up to the right hand of the Father. So this is what theologians call the intermediate state. And um, obviously there's some mystery here, but we do know that we are in the presence of God and that it seems like those who don't know the Lord are in some kind of torment while they're waiting for things to, um, for the judgment to happen, okay? So uh, we have a question from Brendan. Brendan, good to see you. Uh, Brandon, good to see you. Um, question. If our best works are filthy rags before God, then how can the works of the saints make the white linen Christ brides wear? Okay, so I think what we're, what we're confusing here, what's happening with a question like this, Brandon, and notice I did call you Brandon, which is your proper name. Um, sorry, all the times I called you Brandon. <clears throat> um, what's happening here is there is a confusion about the works that would save somebody, which is a complete and total aberrant teaching. Um, when you look at a lot of the cults that were that are in America, the Seventh Day Adventist, the Jehovah Witnesses, the Millerites, the Church Herbert Armstrong Church of God, all of these have the same fallacy, which is works can save you. And so they try to teach you that it's not by grace alone, but you've got to be baptized. Uh, Church of Christ, you've got to be baptized. Um, you've got to, um, there, there's works that have to be connected. You've got to be baptized in the name of Jesus um, or you can't be saved. There's always works attached to it. The passage that we go to is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I'm sure you know it well, Brandon, but I want you to look closer. Maybe sometimes it's good to see things with a fresh eye. And I'm going to read 8, 9, and 10, okay? 10 is the one I really want to point out here. And then I'll, I'll kind of explain this directly. So, um, in verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved, through faith and not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So, the works can't save me. It's a gift of God. I can't do anything to be saved. I can't jump high enough to be saved. It's a free grace and it's, it's works can't save me. But this passage is really about works. It is about God's grace and salvation through grace. But listen to what it says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship. It just said, not a works that we're saved. But we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So you, Brandon, were created for good works. You're his workmanship. You're, you're his work of art. And he has created you for good works for you to walk in them, which are the fruit of your salvation, right? He goes on to say, um, created for good works, which God prepare hand before that we should walk in them. So God has good weeks works prepared for me to walk in them. Now I can't be saved by these good works and my heart is desperately wicked, which is part of what you brought in here. If my, if my righteousness is filthy rags, then how can I ever do anything that's good? But it doesn't mean you can't do things that are good. It means that the righteousness is filthy rags before God, right? Not compared to men. It doesn't mean I can't do good things. And so I do good things and I believe that there is a reward. And <clears throat> I believe that the reward is actually reigning with him. That when we do works that God's called us to do, when we faithfully do it with the right heart and the right attitude, then we will be rewarded by able to, being able to rule and reign with him for that thousand years. And maybe even on different levels. So that the more rewards you have, the higher you're able to reign with him and our good works. And maybe God's just encouraging us along the way because we got to have fruit. Remember, the only thing different between the sheep and the goats is what they did and didn't do, Keith Green pointed out. And so really caring for those who are hungry and thirsty and naked and in need is what Christians do. Those are the works that we walk in and they make up the fine linen of the dress for the for the uh, the bride to wear in Revelation, what is it, 18, 19, which talks about um, the bride of Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
Okay, <clears throat> so hopefully that answers your question uh, about it. Um, our works follow salvation. The cults that the that are work cults, they have put things in front of salvation. You got to do this before you're saved. But there's nothing you can do to be saved. Nothing. And and how silly silly would it be just to be some kind of a some kind of a um, ritual, communion or or baptism by that by which you were saved, because you can do those without the heart. But real salvation comes when a person genuinely causes him to be their Lord and confesses him as Lord and believes that God raised him from the dead, and then he will be saved. <clears throat> and when you receive Christ, he invites you to become a child of God. All right? So works follow those who are genuinely saved. This is what James said in the book of James when he said, show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. My works are going to reveal that I have faith. They're fruit, and we are fruit inspectors. But it has nothing to do with salvation, and we can't do anything to be saved. But because we are regenerated people, it makes sense that the transformation would be in the area of good works as well. All right, Brandon, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, we have a question from Jari. <clears throat> Jari says, follow-up, Hitler, Stalin, grew up Christians. So isn't it Christianity's fault that the world is the way that it is? They may have been atheists, but look how they grew up Question from my uncle. All right. Um, so, I don't know what denomination Hitler or Stalin grew up in, what their family was. But Jari, you know as well as I do, well, I grew up in a Christian home, but my mom and my dad weren't genuinely saved. They just believed because they went to church, they were okay. <clears throat> because they believed God existed, that they were okay. And my father died when I was 13 years old, before I got saved. I got saved shortly after his death. <clears throat> and I would walk by his room and I would see him staring up at the ceiling as he was getting closer to death. And I think that he was making things right with God. At least that's my hope. That I'll see my dad again and he will be in the presence of God. But can the case be made that Hitler and Stalin grew up in genuine Christian homes? Because you can't judge Jesus on, on what Christians or so-called Christians do, especially so-called Christians, right? So if someone's claiming that they're a Christian, but they're not, so out of all the people in America who are Christian, how many of them are genuinely born again and are genuinely saved? So I would need to do more work on this. <clears throat> and you are blatantly forgetting that it, in this argument. So... A lot of times in people's arguments, there are logical fallacies. The logic just breaks down. So his argument, you're born into a Christian family, you became a mass murderer. Therefore, it must be Christianity. That's, that's his logic, okay? It leaves out the fact you were born in Christianity, you became an atheist, you murdered a bunch of people. What's more likely to be the cause of the mass murder by Hitler and Stalin? Christianity or atheism? What's more likely to be the cause? What were they when they did the mass murders? Were they Christians or were they atheists? Now, there are more Christians <clears throat> by name on earth than any other group right now. So that makes sense that people would be born into Christian families, but they wouldn't follow God. Obviously, just because you grow up, Hitler, Stalin, grew up Christians, doesn't mean that you're a Christian. It means that they were in some denomination, and I don't know what that was. But there's a fallacy. The fallacy breaks down. <clears throat> you would never make that argument. You'd never make the argument that because um, Lincoln grew up in Tennessee, he became president. So growing up in Tennessee resulted in him being president. That's disconnected. There's a logical fallacy in it. The, the, the log, the, there has to be logic connecting what the argument that you're making. And so it's better to say Hitler and Stalin were atheists, communists, when they murdered all these people. That's logical. To say they grew up Christians, then they murdered all these people. Leaving out, I don't see anything in there about atheism. Leaving out atheism completely is a fallacy. It's got a logical fallacy in it, and you can see it clearly. All right, 
And um, not being mean to your uncle, by the way, I think it's a thoughtful question, but there are people trying to villainize Christianity when you're trying to lay, <clears throat> you're trying to lay all the works of, of Hitler and Stalin, Stalin especially being an atheist, but you're trying to lay them at the feet of Christianity? When it was Christians who hid people? When it was Christians who, who rescued people from them? When there's account after account of those kind of things? Um, it just, it's, it's the, it's the neo-atheist shtick, right? Okay, so I appreciate that. Um, Jari, we're going to come back to this question. I wonder if I can favorite this. Let me just try something here. I'm going to favorite it. Look, I did that. Let me go to the favorites now. And there you are. All right, so I have favorited your question, Jari. If we run out of questions, your second question, if we run out of questions, and the first one may have been a follow-up, I think it was, but I'm going to, we just take one question for one person. Um, just wanting to be fair for people that are writing questions in. I will favorite second questions and I'll come back to them um, a little bit later on. All right. So I just favorited um, that question from you. So let's go ahead. Uh, I think we have a question from Daniel. Uh, Daniel, good to see you. Good to have you with us. Daniel says, <clears throat> is it a sin to give money to prosperity preachers? Or does God use our money even in those types of ministries? Yeah, we can't, we can't know people's hearts, right? So, I, what about a person who goes to a Benny Hen crusade and gets saved? And then he finds out that he's a heretic. Was that person genuinely saved? Can God save someone when the preacher has something going on that he shouldn't have? It's the faith in God that matters. And when you are giving the money, if you are giving it to be rich, to compound from rich, it'll do you no good. But if you have a right heart and you're saying, Lord, I want to give to you and I want this to be used for your kingdom, then who knows what God will do with it? Because God looks on the heart, not on the outward side. And so these guys do a, a lot of things. Um, it says that people who teach God and this means again are destitute of the truth. It's just so not true. It's just so not the gospel, right? <clears throat> but if you give it and you have the right heart, I believe what God will see is your heart, Daniel. And I don't think it's a sin to give to prosperity preachers. I think it's your heart in giving. Now, me knowing what I know, you knowing what you know, Daniel, um, I do think it would be a sin because I know it's wrong. I know they're involved in wrong things. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> I love a mute button. All right. So, um, thank you for your question, um, Jari. So, I guess it could be sin if you know more. But I'm just thinking about the poor person who's there who's just been invited to this thing. And they're just getting hit for this. This is their first exposure to Christianity. And it's all about money. And God wants you rich. And it's such a, such a sad thing. So, we have a question from Susan. Susan says, um, do you think each of us has our own thorn? that God will not remove for our good. Thank you. Uh, I would use a different terminology for it, Susan, but I think it's, it's correct. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. So we are to make self-sacrifices, and we are to pick up our cross, which means we die to ourselves and we live for him. And as far as God giving each one of us something, to humble us, whether it be a sickness or just some thorn, something that's embarrassing, maybe that depends on whether or not we have a lot of pride. And God goes, I got to take care of this. Because if I don't, <clears throat> then this guy's going to have an abundance of pride. And Paul recognized that he, had an that he had a huge calling and that God was using it to humble him. And so, do I think that every one of us has a thorn? No. Do I think we're all supposed to carry the cross? Yes. Um, <clears throat> and maybe, maybe you don't need to be humbled the way that Paul needed to be humbled. And, <clears throat> I mean, the, the whole connection is how many ways he was using Paul. All right? So, we have a question from The Whole Truth. The Whole Truth, good to see you. <clears throat> Looks like we, um, what do we have here today? We have uh, Facebook and YouTube. 
mostly YouTube looks like. I don't know. Looks looks different. Always seems to. Anyway, um, the whole truth says, hi, Pastor Robert. Many pastors teach that Matthew 23, 23 was a New Testament endorsement by Jesus that we need to tithe 10%. Do you think that, uh, do you see it that way? I have prayed about this and we'll follow up. All right, so let me go to Matthew 23, 23. <clears throat> Pretty easy one to remember. Matthew 23, 23. All right. Okay. And so uh, Jesus is, in Matthew 23, he's coming unglued on the scribes and Pharisees. All right, he is just laying into them. Woe unto you, you hypocrite! You, um, uh, you lay burdens on men's back, you won't lift them up, and he's just going through it. Okay, so these are men who are living in the Old Testament times, right? They're not living in the New Testament times. Now, after Jesus's resurrection, had this event happened, and Jesus said that to them, <clears throat> maybe there could be a way of saying that this is. Um, this is supporting tithing. So let me read the text to you. So it says here, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of your mint, anise, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So he clearly tells them that they tithe their mint and their cumin, and that's okay. You can do this. But you, t you, you tithe your, your spices, but you neglect justice and, or, uh, yeah, justice and mercy and faith. So you're not a merciful person. You're not just. You're unjust and you're tithing. So what was that all about? But this does not connect with us having to tithe. There's nothing in the New Testament that reiterates the Old Testament you're stealing from God if you don't give him a tenth. Now, if you feel like, I need to give God a tenth. <clears throat> hey, then do it. It's good. They do more. Give tithes and offerings. And if you as a New Testament Christian want to tithe, then you can tithe. So people will come to me sometimes and say, well, how much should I tithe? And it's like, well, 10% because <laughs> that's a tithe. So 10% of what you make, you bring to God. Should I tie that out of my gross or should I tie that out of my net? I don't know. That's a decision you have to make as well. But today, the closest we get to it is 2 Corinthians chapter 9, which tells us that we are to give. Well, look at the way that it says not to give. Let's go ahead and go there. 2 Corinthians 9. Uh, sorry to do that way when you guys are watching. <clears throat> Let me get to wherever that's at. Just get you there. Let me take a look at this. <clears throat> this is what I should have done in the first place. All right. Um, yeah, so we're still talking about tithing, um, the whole truth. Um, so where are we at here? Okay, so um, this is a passage on giving by Paul in the New Testament times. He's taking a collection to give to the church in Jerusalem. He says, but this I say to you, uh, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Now, it doesn't say that to appeal to your greed, but to appeal to your generosity. It's okay to be generous because God's going to give back to you. So let each one gives as he purposes in his heart. So if you purpose to tithe, you can do that. If you purpose to give $200 a month, you can do that. Or $20 a month, you can do that. You purpose in your heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, not because you have to. See, if it was tithing, the whole truth, it would be of necessity because you're robbing from God. So if God wants us to tithe in the New Testament, then we better do it. But that's going to be, people are going to do it grudgingly <clears throat> or in necessity. So if God told me to tithe and I do it, it's out of necessity. But I'm, not, I'm supposed to give not grudgingly and not of necessity for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you that you always have all sufficiency in all things that have an abundance for every good work. God's, again, going to give back to you. Give, and it will be given unto you. Press down, shaken together, and running over. Give sparingly, receive sparingly. So that necessity aspect there really tells me that, that giving is not tithing because that would be a necessity. Besides that, 
uh, we go by what the scriptures have to say, <clears throat> and the Bible, the New Testament, never tells us as Christians that we're supposed to tithe. And we are told we're no longer under the law. Jesus said, not one jot or tittle of the law shall pass away until it is fulfilled. Fulfilling it, Jesus fulfilled it. Moses opened the book of the law and Jesus closed it by becoming a high priest, by becoming the sacrifice, by becoming our Sabbath. So we no longer keep the law. So we, we don't have to keep any of the restrictions that are in the law, but we fulfill it by love. <clears throat> Excuse me, we're gonna fulfill the spirit of the law by love. All right, so thank you, The Whole Truth. I appreciate that. Um, good to have you here with us today. And we'll go ahead and take a look and see if I can find another question. We have a follow-up from The Whole Truth. Uh, so probably about giving still. My thought is that perhaps Jesus was saying you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former because their tithing was okay, but it was their priorities that were wrong. And, and I would agree with that. Their but even even worse than that, their tithing was okay, but it was just downright sinful to not be just and mercy and merciful in their position. And so, yes, they should have done the latter, just and mercy, without letting go in the former undone. You're not doing anything bad if you're deciding to give to God and to tithe. But remember, again, these guys are are in the Old Testament time. They're under the law. The law Jesus has yet to become the Passover lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And so they're still under the law. All right. But um, uh, good question. Thank you. We have a question from Manny. Um, Manny says, question. I hear the great Charles Stanley say that repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Do you agree with that statement? I would. So <clears throat> what he's saying is, as soon as you repent, you turn to God. You're walking away from him. You're living for yourself. You're absorbed in your, in your life. You love darkness. You love evil because all men do. And even though people may deny that, the truth is that it's in there. And then you turn from the evil and you turn towards God. Or let's put it this way. You turn towards God, which makes you turn away from evil. And now you invite Christ into your life and you begin living for him. So yes, turning towards God is turning away from evil. That's repentance. And so faith and repentance are the same side of the same coin. <clears throat> I love the analogy. I think it's perfect. I think it helps us really understand that we're not just repenting from sin. We are. But we're repenting from a whole lifestyle. We're changing completely. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away and everything becomes new. So um, thank you again for your question. I really appreciate that. So we have a, well, I'm going to make sure I didn't get lost and skip someone. All right. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know what happened here, but um, okay, we've got your question, Manny. There it is. And we have a question from Stephen. So Stephen says, Pastor Robert, Joshua 1 says that if we were to keep the word, he would prosper in everything. Now, I believe that prosperity there is spiritual, like David in Psalms 1. <clears throat> right, and I was going to bring up Psalms 1 as soon as you brought up Joshua. So Joshua is told, be strong and courageous. That's kind of like the thing told to Joshua. He needed to be encouraged that he would be strong and courageous. He was going to have to face a lot. He needed to hang with it and to do all that is written in the law, and then you will prosper. Psalms chapter 1. Uh, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sits in the seat of the sinners, nor stands in the place of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, in the law he meditates day and night. And he'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And whatever he does will prosper. Whatever you put your hands to will prosper. Now, <clears throat> we just have a different definition of prosperity. Because how was it that that God was speaking of that kind of prosperity. Was he telling them that they were going to have Cadillacs and, and two-story houses or the equivalent in their day? Or was he telling them that there would be really be genuine prosperity in your life? That you would be a person who would be rich from God's word. Now, also remember, and I said this about in the beginning, there were the, there, there were the blessings and curses of Deuteronomy 27 and 28. And if they kept the law, they would get the blessings but if they didn't keep the law, they'd get the curses. 
and a cursed stone has been found on Mount Eber. I think they, they one shouted the blessings from Mount Gerizim and the curses from Mount Eber. And a cursed stone has been found from Mount Eber that has the name of Yahweh on it that dates back to the time of, of Joshua, which is amazing. It's an amazing find in archaeology. Um, but nevertheless, both David and Joshua were living under the Old Testament law. And I do think there was something that if you were keeping the law and you were, you, were, you, were, you were keeping and walking with God, that God was going to bless you in that way if you were. But those are Old Testament, that's an Old Testament principle of living under the curses. And, and now we're in the New Testament and we're living under grace. And it's an entirely different thing. And so you can't go back to Psalms, what is it, 91? I will heal all of your diseases. You can't go back there and say, well, that's to us today. Yes, God does heal today, but he does heal everybody for his reasons. But he would have done that for Israel had they kept the law, but they didn't. And we wouldn't want the same deal they got anyway. Because you might think, oh, well, then maybe I could be rich and maybe I could never be sick. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. But we probably wouldn't keep the law. And we'd get the curses. We'd get the wrong end of the stick or the raw end of the deal, we would get the curses and not get the blessings. So you've got to keep in mind when you're looking at the scriptures, who it's written to. Both of the last questions have to deal with that. So you've got the guy tithing, who's a Pharisee, and Jesus saying you should do it, but he's not living in the new covenant, he's living in the covenant of the law. And you've got these, uh, the, um, you've got these two guys living solidly in the Old Testament times. And there seems to be that when you would study God's word and meditate on it, that God would bring prosperity. But it doesn't just mean money or cars or whatever. It's real, genuine prosperity, which like you said, could be spiritual. But it could be more than that. It could be a richness in relationships, a richness in your relationship with God, a success in what you're doing for him, and maybe other things but you will have success and you'll prosper. But that was connected to the keeping of the law and we don't have that. And it's just good for us to remember who it's written to. And if it's written to them, can I take that promise for myself? It's a good question to ask ourselves. All right. So I got a little bit going on with my throat here today. Um, so we have a question, looks like it, from um, Kevin. So Kevin says... Um, how come in Matthew 1.23, when Mary was told, you will birth a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel, how come she named him Jesus instead of Emmanuel? <clears throat> All right, Kevin, hey, I, I appreciate um, your question and it's you're just getting certain things mixed up, okay? So in Isaiah 7.14, it says, behold, a, a, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child and you will call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. So that's the incarnation. This child who's gonna be born by the virgin is going to be God with us, Emmanuel. But when the angel showed up to Mary and said, blessed are you favored among women. She didn't know what kind of greeting this was. And then he said, you're gonna bear a child and he's gonna save his people from their sins. So you're gonna name him salvation or Yahweh salvation. Yahshua, or Yeshua, that's how you pronounce it in Hebrew, Yeshua, which has Yahweh salvation in, it, in his name. So she was told to name him Jesus, but he would be called Emmanuel, God with us. So his name is Emmanuel, his name is Jesus. She was told to name him Jesus, which is Yahweh salvation, which Jesus is. And near the end of the book of Luke, we see this great play on words as he enters into Jericho Salvation comes to a blind beggar, two of them actually. And then when he gets in Jericho, salvation comes in the house of Zacchaeus. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house, which is a play on his own name. Because Yeshua, Yahweh's salvation had come into that house and salvation had come into that house. And then it says in the Old Testament that he went into Jerusalem. The next thing he does is go on the donkey into Jerusalem. And the Old Testament says, having salvation. And see so here is God's salvation, or Yahweh's salvation, Yeshua, riding on a donkey, bringing salvation with him. So there's a play on these words, okay? So it's just a, this is just a little confusion between two passages. Um, 
so let me look up Matthew 123. I appreciate you putting the reference that's in here. Matthew 123. <clears throat> so see, let me let me go and just put this up on the screen here for you. All right, Kevin. Um, so um, here we go. Let's just go back a little bit. So sometimes reading things in context can help. Um, <clears throat> but while he thought about these things, so this is Joseph and not Mary here in, in Matthew. But as he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to marry your wife, for which she is conceived in hers of the Holy Spirit. And you will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So this is what was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, the Lord through the prophet saying, behold, a virgin shall bear a child, or behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So here, the angels appearing to, to uh, Joseph in a dream, who was thinking about not marrying her because she was suddenly found with child, and he said, this child is of the spirit, name him Jesus, which is God's salvation, and this is to fulfill what was said in Isaiah 7:14. So this is a fulfillment. A virgin is going to conceive and bear a child, and he would know that now. All right. So it's just taking those couple of little passages, blending them together, and um, when you read them a little bit carefuler, then and then it comes through. All right, Kevin. Thank you very much. I appreciate that, and I appreciate you adding the reference there. I think it really helps to clear thing clear things up. All right. So we have a question from Renee. Renee says, Kenneth, uh, is Kenneth Copeland belong to the prosperity movement? Yes, yes, and yes. And again, yes, and by the way, yes, and yes, and yes. Um, if he is, uh, if, if he is, I know someone that teaches from his material in a church. My friend left because he seemed like it was all about getting rich. Thank you, Pastor Robert. Um, yeah, Kenneth Copeland is probably, let me get this uh, other screen up. There you go. <clears throat> Kenneth Copeland is probably right now, I can't say he's the biggest offender. He's offends in this area as much as anybody else does. And the stuff that he does is just, um, I just don't want to be mean. So I'll just say it's just not good. It's heretical, quite frankly. And he's got himself rich off of other people by, by telling them that they can get rich by giving to him. It's just a racket, bottom line, for all of these guys. And um, I would, I don't know, I would try to let them know that, you know, the material that you're teaching here is wrong. You've got it from the wrong place. This is not what Christianity is. It's not what the gospel is about. Show them 1 Timothy 6, Philippians 4, Paul, I've learned how to abound and to have. I've, I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't speak of need at all. All right. So uh, let's see what do we got here. We got just a few more minutes. So we have a question from Vance. Uh, let me see. Do we have another one up here? Yeah. Let's go. Let's go first of all to um, T Town Tree Man. T Town Tree Man. All right. T Town Tree Man. Good to see you. Hello again, Pastor Robert. Um, question: Second Corinthians five one. Paul says, "If our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed." We have a building from God that is referring to John 14, 2, Mansions Passages, reference. Yeah, I'm not sure those two are connected. So I think that when Paul is talking in Corinthians, he's talking about 2 Corinthians 5, um, he's talking about the earthly body, our bodies, okay? And um, you said 2 Corinthians 5, 1, so let me just go to, um, did I go 5, 1? Yeah, let's just read this really quickly, okay? So here it says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven, if indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. But we who are in this tent groan, see, it's the body, being burdened, not because of what we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up in this life. So in Corinthians, he's talking about our bodies. And this is the passage where I said earlier that they, they may have, he may be talking about a temporary body or us as a spirit in heaven being able to manifest before we get our resurrected body and, and are like Christ. 
And then in John 14, 2, he's talking about preparing a place for us. Um, the word for mansions there uh, means room, literally. Um, so there is room for you in heaven. All right. So just again, not, not the same thing. One talking about our our bodies as being clothed or having a house in our bodies where our spirit lives. The other one talking about um, a place that God has for us in heaven. All right. So Vance, good to see you. Um, good to have you with us. Vance says, Old Testament, our God punished Babylon, even destroying children's children. Will children suffer eternity or does the second death mean real death? Isaiah 14, 22, Matthew 25, 41, and Revelation 21, 8. All right, so I'm running out of time a little bit, so I'm not going to look up each of these references. I'm going to concede them that they do reference a second death. So I, I'm going to be doing my teaching on hell within the next couple of weeks. And I'm going to tip my hand a little bit here. And I've been holding this kind of close to the vest, as they say. Um, so there are, there are two things that are taught in scripture about hell that can't coexist together. So one of them has to be an analogy of the other one. Okay. For example, it says, Jesus said, and they'll be thrown into Gehenna, which is a valley by Jerusalem, not a garbage dump, by the way, felt like uh, George W. Bush, the first one, not a garbage dump. Not, not at all. It wasn't a garbage dump. People say it was a garbage dump. The garbage dump they found was from the Roman era after the time of Christ. It was not a garbage dump during the time of Jesus. It was a beautiful valley, but it was a valley that they had sacrificed children in. And so he says, they're going to be thrown into Gehenna where the worm never dies and the fire never goes out. And Jesus is quoting something from the Old Testament that they will go and look on the bodies of the slain that are in the valley of Gehenna where the fire doesn't go out and the worm never dies. Now, Jesus also said, broad is the way that leads to, to destruction and many there are that find it. Narrow is the way that leads to life. So broad is the way that leads to destruction. Well, that's different than eternal conscience suffering. And if it talks about death, that's different than, than eternal punishment, which is another phrase the Bible uses. So, which one's the analogy? Is the analogy eternal conscious torment, and God's talking about destruction, death, perishing, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would not believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life? Or is the analogy that there is eternal, that death and perishing and destruction is an analogy for eternal conscience suffering. Now, certain cults follow um, annihilationism, which is the passages on destruction. It's talking about death. Um, these cults are the Worldwide Church of God, um, Seventh-day Adventists, um, Jehovah Witnesses, um, several others that come out of the Millerite movement. If you know what that is, Vance, it's a movement in the, eight, the middle of the 15, uh, 1500s by a guy by the name of William Miller. And all of these kind of came out of him and they're all works-based. I mentioned that earlier. So um, they all believe in it, which makes Christians shy away from the idea of annihilationism. But there were solid Christians and are who believe it, who say, well, I think that the death and the destruction should be looked at. Now, I agree with that. I think that we should look, what is death and what does destruction mean? And what does eternal punishment mean? And we do know that the Antichrist, the false witness, and the devil are tormented day and night forever and ever in the lake of fire. We also know the lake of fire was made for the devil and his angels. We also know some are going to be beaten with few stripes and some are going to be beaten with many stripes. Now, this is an argument for annihilationism because if how can you have few stripes if you're beat for all of eternity? That would be infinite beatings. You could say someone could be beaten more throughout eternity than you're beaten throughout of eternity. You have less being beaten than they have been beaten. So what we're going to do in our study advance is we're going to take time to take a look at these, to look at in history who has believed in annihilation when it first came onto the scene, what church history has on it, 
what the scriptures say about hell. So we want to actually go to the Bible. And my, my main problem, and I'll be honest with you right now, I'm like, I'm like up in the air here. I don't know. I kind of think about annihilationism and I kind of think it's not true. But I think that the way people teach hell and that they never bring up these passages about destruction or perishing, they kind of give, they give part of the account, not all of it. So I want to take it all into account and I really want to find the truth. And I'm really praying that God gives us real clarity in this. And it may be as simple as, as a Christian, you have, you, it's called a false teaching, annihilationism. And I understand because a, a lot of cults teach it. But a lot of cults teach things that we teach too that aren't false doctrines. And so was John Stott, who believed in annihilationism, was he a false teacher? John Stott's greatly respected, if you don't know who he is, within Christianity. So um, I hope I went down the right road with your questions here because I didn't take time to, to bring it up. Um, in Revelation 21.8, it's called the second death. That's the, the, the resurrection of the dead. And they're thrown into the lake of, of fire after they are judged. All right. Um, this is something that we need to thoughtfully deal with. Um, I'm not the only one who has been considering this for a number of years now that I've been looking at. What does the Bible say about our soul? Is it eternal? Is eternal life a gift that I get when I get saved or has my soul been eternal forever? And that's, that, that fits into this question. Because if the Bible clearly says that our soul is eternal, then we know that annihilationism isn't true. We could also think a couple more things here. I'm going to have to go, but a couple more things here that are really important on this issue. Um, number one, people will often say, well, they're going to, they're going to, God's going to torment somebody for 70 years of sin for all of eternity. That's not fair. But the truth is, is that the hatred, the anger against God continues on forever. So if God does torment them forever, it's because their sin is continual. It wasn't just the 70 years they were alive, their soul goes on. And you don't have to have a body, you can have a, don't have to have a body to sin, and so they continue to sin. It also could be that we don't know the depths of sin, how bad they are. We could, we could think that they're much better than they are not realize the evil that's connected with it. Also, it depends on who you assault. So if, if I'm walking down the road and I see you, Vance, and I'm, I'm mad at you for some reason, and I walk up and punch you, you're probably not going to press charges against me. You might be like, what in the world is wrong with you? What's going on? Um, but there's not going to be much consequences from it. And even if you do press charges, they're going to look at my record. They're going to see, you know, this guy doesn't get into trouble. He doesn't get into fights. Um, I don't know what this is all about. I might get a small fine. Probably wouldn't do any prison time. Um, but if the queen, the king of England, were in the United States, and I ran through a security and I punched him in the face, do you think they're going to take any of that into account? What do you think they're going to do with me? So who I offend matters. And in God and his greatness and his great revelation of light, have we offended him and caused it to be, and, and it's a great offense. And that we are just not seeing the eternal punishment as we should because we're not seeing it correctly. So those are some thoughts that I'm thinking about and that we will be covering here very soon um, as we cover, the, as we cover um, hell in the book of Revelation. Um, which is either going to be next Wednesday or the Wednesday after that. All right, Nance, I appreciate your question. Sorry, I didn't look up your um, your passages, but I, I know what they say. So <clears throat> it, it does say death and destruction and, and, and those kind of things about um, about eternity. Um, and so I'm, I'm looking here. We have some other questions that are here. I appreciate you guys. I appreciate your um, late questions. Um, I'm going to look back at these later on to see if there's any that I can use um, for our, one of our future Q&As, all right? We have a service in about um, an hour, and um, we're going to be teaching on Gog and Magog and the end of the tribulation period and when the armies are finally destroyed right before the great white throne of judgment. So we're marching slowly through chapter 20 because there's a lot of 
of um, controversy in this chapter. So we're going slowly, three verses at a time, covering another. I think maybe we'll cover four tonight, but we already covered seven earlier, so we're really only covering three. Um, but it'll be a great study on the final judgment of Satan. And we'll get a little bit into what we talked about today too, um, Vance. All right. So I appreciate you guys. Love you. Stay close to Jesus. Walk in the Spirit. And you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. What a great promise. If that could, if that could just be our life verse. I'm going to walk in the Spirit. You would not fulfill the lust of the flesh. All right. Stay close to Jesus. God bless you guys. I'm out. And we will see you for another Q&A. Lord willing, on Saturday.